This episode is brought to you by the AIA Film Challenge. Let architecture inspire your next short for a chance to win $5,000 and a screening at the Architecture and Design Film Festival in New York. The fourth annual AIA Film Challenge invites filmmakers to team with architects and share stories of architects and civic leaders designing a better future for our communities. Register today at AIAFilmChallenge.org. That's AIAFilmChallenge.org. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Eric Lures. And I'm John Fusco. It's August 30th, 2018, and on this week's show, Netflix gets revenge on Cannes, some big changes for the tomato meter and maybe the whole world of film criticism, two new drones for the indie filmmaker, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Hi out there, welcome to this week's show from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. As always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. So we talked last week about the dog days of summer. Now it's really, really woof, woof dog days. Labor Day weekend. Yeah, heading into the Labor Day weekend. It's weird how you don't have to work on Labor Day. You think that would be the one day of the year you definitely have to. (laughs) Oh, no, that's when you're supposed to have babies. Oh, oh, okay. Well, tell your sister. Oh, it's going to be a hell of a weekend. (laughs) Maybe, actually, you know, Charles Haynes' baby is due. On Labor Day? On the day after Labor Day. So maybe Ah. his wife will go into labor on Labor Day. Wow. I never thought about that. Mazel tov, guys. Anyway, so that means it's really, really fall festival season, and it officially kicked off last night with the opening of the prestigious Venice Film Festival. Impressively, this is the festival's 75th year. Now, we gave a lot of attention to the Cannes Netflix kerfuffles earlier this year when the very traditional French festival and film industry were sparring with the very modern streaming service. Ultimately, Netflix films were not welcomed into Cannes competition, but... Netflix is back with a vengeance because apparently Venice has no such qualms. In fact, six Netflix films will screen in Venice, which is a record for the event, and seven will play the following week in Toronto, including TIFF's opening night film, David Mackenzie's Scottish period epic called Outlaw King. Now, just like in France, Italian cinema owners are righteously angry about the inclusion of these Netflix films, but it looks like they're fighting a losing battle. Venice's director Alberto Barbera no relation to Hannah, told The Hollywood Reporter, (laughs) filmmakers are glad to get financing from Netflix because Netflix gives total freedom to the filmmaker to make the film that they wish without any kind of intrusion. One of the Netflix inclusions I'm really curious about is The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is a six-part Western anthology film by the Coen brothers that was originally planned to be a TV series and then was converted into a full-length film. So I'm kind of, I'm curious to see how that plays out, especially in the Netflix model. So, if only Venice was as inclusive of women in its lineup as it was of streaming services, out of 21 films in competition this year, only one has a female director, which, by the way, is the same record from last year. The The film directed by a female this year is The Nightingale by Australia's Jennifer Kent, who did The Babadook a few years ago. This weekend also marks one of the most under-the-radar but influential festivals, Telluride, which happens every Labor Day weekend in the Colorado Rockies. The fest is known as much for its mysterious lineup that isn't announced until festival goers are on site as it is for being an arbiter of the upcoming Oscar season. So we'll keep you posted on any news out of Telluride next week. And in even more fall festival news, we've learned that something is launching at the Toronto International Film Fest next week, aside from just big film premieres. 
Yeah, so love it or hate it, Rotten Tomatoes continues to be a vital source of movie recommendations for the general public, and the scope of those offering reviews that contribute to the tomato meter, which is an aggregation of all the critics' negative or positive reviews, uh, is expanding. As the company reported this week, Rotten Tomatoes Entertainment Fans' go-to resource for movie and TV show recommendations, that's debatable, but maybe, has debuted revamped critics' criteria for its popular tomato meter rating system, having an increased focus on the critics' individual qualifications and body of work, rather than basing tomato meter approval primarily on their publication or employer. The strategy will allow for a wider and more diverse pool of critics' perspectives to be included in the tomato meter. Now, what's also interesting about that is, in addition, the criteria has expanded beyond the written review to include newer media platforms. Now, individuals and outlets that produce reviews for podcasts and digital video series with a strong social media presence and audience engagement will be considered for the tomato meter. Most recently, over 200 new tomato meter approved critics have been added, with many more to come. Well, that's a big number. It is, yeah. And the, the biggest news here, I feel, you know, Obviously, the diversity is an interesting point, but also the inclusion of non-print publications now being considered to join the ranks as well. Uh, you need not be a traditional writer or you know print or online critic to have your name listed as a quote-unquote top critic. Podcasts being considered now means that we should be are expecting our invitation in the mail any day now. Uh, granted, the idea of individuals having a large social media presence uh, being considered more strongly over quote-unquote traditional critics who may not have adapted as quickly to the competitive online world of journalism is, I think, a little depressing. Uh, I, I can see that there's more of a focus on beefing up the selection of diverse influencers on the site, which is great. Uh, I just The social media presence part just w- always worries me a little bit uh, in terms of judging clout. Uh, it definitely means they have a larger voice online, um, but sometimes I wonder about the quality of that voice. And we've been talking about the impending launch of Disney's streaming platform to end all streaming platforms a lot this year. No one quite knew what the service would morph into when Disney's intentions were first announced almost a year ago, especially now that they own arguably the three most valuable franchises in the world with Marvel, Star Wars, and Pixar. But a couple of days ago, Disney's chairman and CEO Bob Iger finally revealed some concrete details as to what this service would be and even its name. So, guys, it's time to get ready for Disney Play. I, I think Disney Play, that's uh, Frozen on Broadway? Or yeah, the that's, Lion King? That's, that's one of them. Or, uh, Sounds like hentai to me. Aladdin? Oh, God. Aladdin is hentai. Jeez. Disney Play. So, Eager indicated that <laughs> Disney Play is the company's biggest priority in 2019, which says a lot given the scope of Disney's influence and content. They have a lot of plans for 2019. Launching a streaming service is important to Disney, but it won't come without its costs. Variety reports that Disney currently earns more than $300 million annually through its licensing deal with Netflix, which will most likely come to an end in 2019. Apparently, however, one thing Disney Play won't be doing is pulling original Marvel, Star Wars, or Disney content off competing platforms. This should come as good news to fans of live-action Marvel series on Netflix, as well as recent series such as The Gifted and Runaways. The same may not be true for Disney distributed films, which will most likely move over to Disney Play. When it comes to Disney Play's initial library, they won't attempt to match Netflix in sheer volume of content, but they're able to draw from Marvel, Star Wars, Pixar, and other Disney brands, and that makes it a service uh, that has like a certain amount of exclusivity that the other platforms lack. The company is also launching a slate of original made-for-streaming films and a couple of streaming-exclusive series in that regard, 
These series will focus on four key Disney franchises, Star Wars, which will be overseen by John Favreau, High School Musical, Monsters, Inc., and another Untitled Marvel series. Another interesting point to consider is that Disney has plans to undercut Netflix when it comes to pricing. They're expected to offer plans that are less than Netflix's monthly $8 to $14 fees, and Eager acknowledged that it has as much to do with making the service more appealing financially as it does with accurately valuing the amount of content that will be available when it debuts. He doesn't have to worry much because Disney would need approximately 40 million subscribers paying $6 a month to break even, and I'm pretty sure he'll get there if box office receipts have anything to say for it. So they don't have a launch date still at this time, but Eager has hinted in the past that they're aiming for fall 2019, which would make sense because a lot of their movies that are coming out next year can then be on the service. The next Star Wars, I guess, right, will be... Star Winter Wars, Captain Marvel, um, the second Avengers uh, Infinity War yeah, movie, right? The Lion King, um, yeah. what else? There's another live action one, Dumbo. Oh yeah, Tim Burton. Yeah, yeah, so they're they're really racking up on content to put on that service. I think for a logo, it should just be the Disney D, but and it's like a play sign. That's cool. You know? Yeah. I'm just saying, it's Disney Play, and it's like a play button, but it's the D from Disney. You should copyright that. Just saying it, just putting it out there in case that winds up being what happens. Or trademark it. Oh, mm. oh okay. I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> and now, here's Charles Hayne with some tech and gear news. Hey, this is Charles Hayne here with gear news, or tech news, or whatever the hell we want to call it, on August 30th, 2018. So our top story this week is the release of the new Mavic 2 drones from DJI. These are really the drones targeted at the indie filmmaker. If you are ready to like make drone flying your career, if you want to be like a full-time drone person, you're going to end up with an Inspire 2 or maybe even go all the way up to like Matrix 600, which is going to fly an Alexa or fly a Red. But for the rest of us, for those of us who are like, I'm shooting a lot of projects, I want to have a really nice looking drone that can get great shots, but I'm not going to make it my full-time business. That is really what the Mavic is targeted at. It's like in the $1,000 to $1,500 price point. There's also the popular Phantom line of drones, although those are really more targeted at industry these days, because the Mavic, in addition to having really great cameras, they also fold, which makes it really useful if you are getting it to and from set, throw it in your backpack, that kind of thing. The Mavic 2 is a major revision from the original. There's going to be longer battery life, better image quality, and they're now coming in two flavors. And one of them, the Mavic 2 Zoom, uh, includes an optical zoom and a digital zoom, and they've even pre-programmed a dolly zoom into it. So you can do a giant dolly zoom up in the sky, and it's very cool. The other of the two Mavic 2s that are available, and they say you can switch. You could buy a Mavic 2 Zoom and then switch it to this other one later, although you have to send it into the factory to do it, is the Mavic 2 Pro, which is the first time we're seeing Hasselblad branding on a DJI drone. This is pretty cool. This is the result of a strategic partnership between the two companies. Uh, We've been hearing about this for a couple of years. Uh, We are very excited to start to see the results of this. And with the Mavic 2 Pro, it has a large for a drone one-inch sensor. Now, Hasselblad's best known for their medium format imagery, large for a camera sensors. So we're going to say large for a drone makes sense for the place to launch this. Although we're still hoping for like an Inspire 2 with a 645 sensor. We don't know if that's going to happen anytime soon. Uh, Our resident drone 
expert, Randall Asulto, and I got to see them at launch and play with them a bit. And Randall's going to be doing like a full in-depth review of both of them. I got a little hands-on time with them too. I've got to say the footage we've seen is really impressive. Demo videos are great, and there's definitely demo videos online you can take a look at, but actually shooting something where you can see what the scene looks like and then see how well it's being reproduced is key, and from the hour of flying time I got, I was really impressed. Even with the Mavic 2 Zoom with the image quality, it was delivering uh, with its slightly smaller sensor, and I had real fun with the optical zoom. Um, Be on the lookout for Randy's full review soon. The other big gear news this week is the Nikon Z7 and Z6 mirrorless full-frame cameras. These are big news because for the last several years, Sony has had full-frame mirrorless all to itself. Yeah, there's the Panasonic GH5 and Fuji X-H1. They're very popular mirrorless cameras, but they both use smaller sensors. And if you wanted a big sensor, a full-frame 35-millimeter sensor, which is going to offer you better low-light sensitivity and a lot of other, like a shallow depth of field, which a lot of people love, you had to go Sony. Nothing wrong with that, but that was your only choice. Now, one of the two biggest camera brands, Nikon, or biggest traditional camera brands, I think Nikon, Sony might consider themselves one of the biggest now too, but one of the two big traditional camera brands has come into the space, and this is huge. Right now, the Z7 is sort of a higher-end stills one, and the Z6 is more targeted towards filmmakers. It's a little more affordable. It's going to give you some more video options. And apparently, from what we've seen, it's going to be a real contender for video image quality. Uh, Atomos is already touting full support for their platform with like their HDMI units. And Atomos has been pushing for ProRes RAW over HDMI for a while. And if we had to guess, considering the history of Nikon and Atomos working together, wouldn't surprise me if Nikon would be the first people to give uh, ProRes RAW out over HDMI, although no official word on that yet. Now, of course, Nikon making this move means Canon can't let this happen forever, and there are rumors flying like crazy that next Wednesday, September 5th, Canon will announce their full-frame mirrorless, so stay tuned. The Z6 and Z7 should be shipping November, December, and hopefully we'll get some hands-on time and be able to do a review. Uh, last up, quick story, Blackmagic has released the first 4K footage from their Pocket Cinema camera, and we got to see the Pocket Cinema camera back at NAB, we got to play with it the day before in an interview with Grant Petty, it's a very exciting camera for like an insane $1,200 price point, um, and the footage is great, it's nature footage, high contrast situations, and the camera packs a whole ton of features into a small package, so be excited to see a whole lot more Blackmagic pocket cinema 4k camera footage rolling out into the wild soon all right for ask no film school this week we have a question from kip wells who asks hey what are you going to miss most about having liz nord as your editor-in-chief wow kip i looked you up on imdb you've got some great stunt driving in your background but i didn't know you were also a journalist and that's impressive journalism skills i don't know is that breaking an exclusive did that make the announcement for you, Liz? I hope I didn't. And if I did, maybe you'll cut this after Liz makes the announcement in the podcast. Regardless, if I'm ruining the surprise, Liz Nord is going to no longer be working full-time as editor-in-chief at No Film School. I will let her explain in more detail. She's moving on to an exciting new position. So I wanted to take this time to say that the thing I'm going to miss most about Liz Nord here at No Film School is having a great manager. Whether you accept it or not, if you want to work in film, you have to learn to work both side-by-side side collaboratively with people, but also film is very hierarchical and you need to learn to manage people. 
whatever department you're in, even if you're a writer, if you were on a writer's room, but if you're an editor and you have assistants, if you're a DP and you have a crew, if you're a director, you're managing the entire crew, producers, obviously, everybody in set ends up managing other people. And it is a tough skill, and it is something that when it happens well, it's important to appreciate. And Liz has always been a consummate manager, uh, giving people feedback, supervision, direction, and sometimes even criticism that draws the best work out of them without making them defensive while keeping their collaborative energies alive. This is a tough skill, something we all have to learn, and Liz has been amazing at it. I'll be the first to admit I'm not always the easiest person to manage, and in the two-plus years since Liz took a chance on me and wrangled me into writing here on the regular, it's been amazing working both side-by-side side with Liz as we've worked on a variety of projects, but also supervised, managed. Uh, and I'll leave you guys with this one last memory. Uh, we broke the Funnel Cut is Dead story, and for a moment it felt like an old-school newsroom. She got word it was end of life. Within an hour we had, like, confirmed the story with other uh, sources, and then we had made a great Photoshop graphic, and then we were one of the first big film vlogs to cover it. It felt like a, like a classic old-school Hollywood movie. But obviously with, like, much lower stakes, the end-of-life of 10-year-old software is not nearly as dramatic as, like, breaking a political scandal. But it was still really fun. Liz, thank you for bringing me on. So happy to have gotten to know you as a supervisor and a buddy. And good luck on all of your future projects. Okay, wow. So before we move on to this week's movies, I obviously have to respond to that very sweet Ask No Film School. First of all, Charles totally blew up my spot but in the absolutely nicest way possible because that's how Charles does things. And thanks, Kip, who I don't actually know, for that leading question. Um, I also have no idea how you heard the news. This is like Watergate. Kip yeah. broke into our files. Bed. Yeah. Listen, I didn't pay either of them for those contributions. But yes, it's true. Today is my last day as editor-in-chief of No Film School, uh, as I'll be starting a new position at the Sundance Institute, little organization you might have heard of in Utah, um, as well as getting back to work on my documentary, Battle for Jerusalem. Please follow us on Facebook. Have to say it. Uh now, don't fret, boo. I'll still be here with you and the guys every week on the podcast, but my daily editorial duties will be no more. And I'll talk a little more about it later, but let's get into the movies. And now here are some movies opening this week. On Amazon Prime Instant, you can check out Beirut on September 4th. This movie had its premiere back at Sundance in January, and it's an espionage thriller set in the 1970s and 80s in Lebanon. And it stars an alcoholic U.S. diplomat known as John Hamm. Or known as most of them, I guess. John Hamm always plays those alcoholic U.S. people. <laughs> <laughs> he knows his uh, alcoholic his Americans. Type. Anyways, he's recruited to negotiate a hostage situation. It was filmed largely in Morocco and led by experienced director Brad Anderson, who is perhaps most well known for his film *The Mechanist*. Mechan I always machinist. I never machinist. Say machinist. The, the machinist. The one with Christian Bale loses all that weight. Yes, that's what we call it. Exactly. No Film School contributor Loretta Prevost sat in on a panel in Park City featuring cinematographer Bjorn Charpentier, who explained, Brad wanted an urgency, a handheld, dirty, dark look with two cameras. We wanted a doc style and not a classic Hollywood approach. The ground rules were no fill, no backlight, and no moon. We wanted the illusion that a scene could be lit only by car headlights. You can read more about their strategies in bringing a period look to life in Loretta's full article on the site. So before the big Disney play streaming thing starts, we still get to see amazing Marvel movies on Netflix, including with what 
you know, if I'm being honest, despite all the beautiful art I've seen this past year, it was probably my favorite movie, Black Panther. It's coming to Netflix on September 4th, and aren't you lucky? Aside from being the most indie-heavy superhero movie ever, with both its director and DP firmly rooted in the indie world, Ryan Coogler's film broke no fewer than six records in its opening weekend alone. In fact, after the complete four-day weekend, Black Panther made about $235 million domestically and $404 million worldwide, making it the biggest February opening in history. It was also by far the biggest opening for a film by an African-American director. So we've talked a little bit about it on the show before, but why do these stats all matter to indie filmmakers? For one thing, it's smashing Hollywood myths as quickly as it's smashing record sales. Jeff Bach, a senior analyst at the entertainment research firm Exhibitor Relations, put it plainly in the New York Times saying, one by one, these unwritten Hollywood rules about what audiences supposedly will and will not support are falling by the wayside. I think about it like a wall crumbling. In terms of Black Panther, no studio can say again, oh, black movies don't travel. Overseas interest will be minimal. I should also mention that if you haven't seen the film, it's not only black characters that take front and center, it's black female characters. Yeah, the Panther himself is a dude, but his main warriors are women, as is the inventor behind Wakanda's world-saving technology. And by the way, I won't go into a whole backstory, but if you don't know what I'm talking about, long story short, Black Panther is the king of Wakanda. It's a fictional land in Africa. He kicks ass, blah, blah, blah. It's amazing. Beautiful visuals. Thank you, Rachel Morrison. Now you don't really have to see the yeah, movie. Yeah, it sounds like you explained the whole thing. Did you? Did you? Did I spoil so it? So he, he kicks ass and he wins. No, you just painted such a beautiful oh. picture that, oh. like, now I don't think oh. anyone's going to want to see it. Oh. They know. I, I'm seeing it in my mind. Well, you know, you just need to see it for yourself. It's a cultural touchstone for that reason alone. We also have tons of articles about the film on the site. So if you want to refresh before you see it again, or learn something before you see it the first time. Check that out, including an interview with the costume designer, Ruth E. Carter, um, about how she kind of pulled these costumes from reality, from real uh, historical research to kind of elevate a fictional world. And opening in theaters on August 31st is Searching. This is Anish Shaganti's Sundance mystery, Searching, where at the time it was actually going by Search, and now it's uh, Searching, in which the action takes place entirely within a computer screen. At Sundance, it won the Audience Award for Best of Next and the Alfred P. Sloan Feature Film Prize, which goes to a project that involves science fiction or technology. In it, John Cho plays a desperate father who breaks into his daughter's laptop after she goes missing in an attempt to look for clues to find her. Emily Booter sat down with Shiganti to discuss how he co-opted computer technology to direct cinematic attention and why they felt compelled to rename their editors Directors of Screen Photography. Uh, we will put a link to that interview on this podcast post. And um, I actually am looking forward to checking this out. I missed this at Sundance. Uh, I agree. And I have to say, as an aside, I really like the turn John Cho's career is taking. He's made some really great choices in the last couple of years yeah. with Columbus and this. Uh, Gemini, that Aaron Katz movie from a year ago, he's pretty good in as well. So I'd like to see it. And also coming out on August 31st is a movie called Pick Up the Litter. This is a documentary that follows a group of puppies for two years <laughs> as they undergo training for the most rigorous and demanding career known to canine kind, being a guide dog. Dog days of summer, see? It all uh, comes back around. This is a really affecting this, film. I'm going to watch the trailer dark. cry. Co-directors Dana Nachman and Don Hardy were once told by an industry insider that their film was, quote, not a festival film. Weeks later, it was accepted at the Slamdance Film Festival in the opening night slot. Yes. 
After it screened there, the film was picked up by IFC Films' Sundance Selects, and nearly 10 festivals later, it was recently a finalist for the Audience Award at the 2018 Hot Docs Hot Dogs Film Festival. <laughs> Emily Booter also sat down with the co-directors to discuss two of her favorite subjects, dogs and films, and you can read it on the site. I remember when this was screening at Slamdance, uh, the publicist email said you could actually even interview the dogs. Do you remember that? What? Yeah, yeah. You could also request to sit down with the two uh, okay. leading puppies. Sometimes these publicist hooks are just too much. Imagine the transcription. But it's I like, will say, given the last two uh, little capsules we just shared, Emily Booter has really been very productive from beyond the uh, grave. Yeah, in, in January specifically. Yeah, that was true. a huge month. Yeah, you're going to die too soon, and we're going to still hear your voice every day somehow, or every time on Indie Film Weekly. Wow, that's creepy. That is weird. But cool. I feel very a, powerful. A voice from the other side. Yeah. Can you just like introduce yourself as that every time? Hi, this is Liz Nord, RIP. <laughs> Hi, this is Liz Nord, yeah. your voice from the other side. Uh, social oh. media, like I am at the haunted house. <laughs> cool, that's How cool. <laughs> I'll consider it. And for some upcoming grant deadlines, this is a great one. The Center for Asian American Media Open Call actually opens on September 1st, so we're giving you a heads up. Uh, Center for Asian American Media will award between 15000 and 50000 for public television-appropriate documentary programs. This is a nonprofit uh, organization based here in the U.S. dedicated to presenting stories that convey the richness and diversity of Asian American experiences to the broadest audience possible. And um, I'll just mention that I used to work at the Ninth Street Independent Film Center in San Francisco and CAM, this organization was one of the orgs in the building, along with Frameline, the LGBT uh, Film Festival and Film Arts Foundation and um, the San Francisco Jewish Film Festival. And it was a really awesome collective of organizations. And the CAM folks were always really nice and um, I think very, very caring about the content they put out. So I think uh, an additional benefit of getting this grant is having the support of that organization. And with some festival deadlines, August 31st, this Friday, is the extended deadline for Doc NYC, which takes place in New York City from November 8th through the 15th, 2018. It is also an Academy Award qualifying event, and it is America's largest documentary festival and takes place at some great venues like the West Village's IFC Center, Chelsea's SVA Theater, and Sinopolis Chelsea. Voted by Movie Maker Magazine, or as we call it here on the show, Mom. Voted by Mom as one of the top five coolest documentary film festivals in the world. And Mom knows. she Mom always knows. Mom knows best. She does, especially when it comes to coolest documentary film festivals. <laughs> uh, she doesn't love hot dogs, though, that mom. Uh, it also includes a fantastic Pitch Perfect pitch event. Selected projects will be given 10 minutes to pitch, including a trailer or a clip, and 15 to 20 minutes of feedback from an industry panel as part of Doc NYC's industry programming, Doc NYC Pro. And with the deadline on August 31st is the Cleveland International Film Festival. This takes place from March 27th to April 7th, 2019 in Cleveland, Ohio. This is the early bird deadline. This festival was recognized as one of the 50 leading film festivals in the world by IndieWire, as well as the USA Today runner-up for best film festival in the country. Who freaking knew? They accept web series and new media content for free of charge, which is pretty cool. And there's tons of great cash prizes, including a $15,000 prize for the best feature film, a $10,000 prize for the best feature film directed by a woman, and the Central and Eastern European competition for post-Soviet bloc narrative feature, 
which has a $10,000 prize. Wow. I've been working on one of those. I know. I should apply. $10,000 is a lot of money. So check out the site to see all the prizes and categories because they're extensive and they cover a lot of ground. And with a regular deadline of September 3rd is the Big Sky Film Festival, which takes place in Missoula, Montana, from February 15th through the 24th, 2019. The festival hosts over 200 visiting artists, presents an average of 150 nonfiction films, and offers a variety of exciting events throughout the town. In addition to screenings, Big Sky hosts Doc Shop, which is a five-day industry event that includes panels, master classes, workshops, and the Big Sky Pitch Session. The Big Sky Documentary Film Festival is also an Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences qualifying event for short-form documentaries, and the winner of the Best Mini Doc and Best Short Documentary categories automatically qualify to compete for a documentary short Oscar the following year. Uh, I'm not sure what the difference is between Best Mini Doc and Best Short Doc, but you got to be really micro, I guess, for one of them, you know? Yeah, one of them is probably under five minutes, yeah. I'd say, maybe even shorter, under three. I'd like to go to Missoula, Montana. Yeah. I'm sure the nightlife yeah. is pretty crazy. Montana's beautiful. Yeah. Stunning. I'd like to go. So now for Weekly Words of Wisdom. I forgot if we have a song on this one or not. We can be constantly evolving. Words, 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 words. I feel like the wisdom is hard to focus on. Right, right. Just words. <laughs> wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. I'm going to do something a little different for the segment this week. Given uh, Charles's announcement of my announcement earlier in the show, um, I want to share the top five weekly words of wisdom about filmmaking that I've gained from my almost three years as editor-in-chief here. Uh, I'll give the Cliff Notes version here, and hopefully we'll have time to elaborate more in a post on the site. All right, so here we go. Number three. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to go out of order. Wow, this is wacky. Should I, though? Yeah, you should. Are they in order of, like, importance? Well, they kind of, like, build on each other. Oh, okay. We're changing the game. Oh, my gosh, John, you're always throwing me for a loop. I like it. It keeps me on my toes. What are you going to do without me? Should be off our toes. I'm the one leaving. What are you no. going to do without me? Oh, I'll be fine. <laughs> and that's all you need to know, folks. Okay, so number three. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm starting with one. Ah. <laughs> the most important character trait for a filmmaker to have is empathy. Empathy helps you write better screenplays, get better performances out of actors, gain the trust of documentary subjects, and so much more. And by the way, this is a trait you can develop. It's not just something that you have or don't have. You gotta watch that doggy documentary. You'll probably get it. Oh, that's true. Number two, John, this is one I know you agree with. Lenses might be a more important investment than cameras. I used to obsess over which camera to buy and what kind of sensor and resolution and everything. And obviously the body is still important, but one thing I've learned from talking to so many DPs is that your choice of lenses might affect the look of your film even more than any of that, and as investments go, they kind of last longer than cameras, which come out with new models and specs very frequently. So yeah, pay attention to lenses, folks. I know for a lot of you that, that'll be fairly obvious, but I think I think for some of us who work more on the producer side or the screenwriter side, you know, it's not something we, we think about that much. I agree. Oh my God. But I don't agree with that stupid comment about the empathy. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say let's memorialize this, like oh, definitely yeah. save that clip for me so I could listen to it over and over again, but no. You, now no, it's you been ruined. To, you had to still be a smart aleck. Um, number three. Here you go, John. Know your vision and 
be open to input. This is the ultimate filmmaker's yes and. You do need to understand and be passionate about your end game and know what you want, but everyone's going to have a different idea about how to get there, and I advise you just not to be so stubborn that you miss out on a good idea from your team. You hired them for a reason. Number four. This is kind of a groaner, but I think it's really important. Have a hand in your own promotion. I think one of the most common mistakes a new filmmaker makes is to think that they don't have to worry about marketing their own work or that when it's done, when the film is done, they can just hand it off to a publicist or distributor and somebody else will take care of that stuff. The truth is no one is ever going to care about your work as much as you do, and so it's up to you to make sure it gets promoted right, and that starts even during production, making sure you get some great production and behind-the-scenes stills. For us on the press side, that stuff makes such a huge difference. You know, we're getting hundreds of press releases, and if we see a great image or, you know, a really good film title, it's going to grab us. Or, you know, that we can interview puppies. That gave me such a groaner. How about you, Eric? (laughs) I agree with this one. I just don't agree with that stupid empathy one. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I cannot wait to leave. Um, Wait, what? Okay, number five. Number two. (laughs) I thought you were the math expert. I am. That's Mm. why my ones are the right ones. Oh, so yours are like, it's like so complicated that we can't even really comprehend. (laughs) That's probably true. Um, This actually has to do with numbers, this one. Um, Almost anything can be done at any age. So last week we answered an Ask No Film School question about what age was too old to break into the film industry. And we basically said, no age is too old. But I'll also add that no age is too young. Yes, your ideas tend to get more sophisticated with age, and you, of course, get more experience after years in the field. But I hope that none of you ever feel like you're too young to start having a serious career in film by just making stuff you love. In conclusion, number six. Uh, It's been an honor supporting your work on the site, and I look forward to continuing to do so on the podcast. So thank you all so much. And that leads us right into shout-outs. Heyo! We are coming full circle with fall festival season on this episode, as I'd like to give a shout-out to what you all know is one of my favorites, Camden International, another SIF, up in Maine. Uh, I'll be covering the fest again this year with a couple podcasts, but I'm mentioning it today because they just announced their lineup. And in what I believe is an industry first, half or more of the selections are directed or co-directed by women across every category of this year's lineup, including features, shorts, competitions, artist programs, and immersive and VR installations. Also of note is that half of the films are made by first or second time filmmakers. So I just want to say thank you, Camden and the Points North folks, for walking the talk when it comes to showcasing new and diverse talent. And, oh yeah, if you have access to CNN, you'll finally be able to watch the summer's hottest doc on TV this Labor Day weekend. Won't you be my neighbor? (laughs) RGB? Oh. Oh. RBG? Three tall strangers? Three identical (laughs) strangers? Three (laughs) identical Mr. Rogers judges? Oh. Yes. No, I'm talking about my girl, RBG. You can see the inspiring film about the mini but mighty Supreme Court justice premiering on CNN on Monday, September 3rd at 9 p.m. I guessed that one without looking at the paper this time. For real. Look. He's not looking at anything, folks. Well, it wasn't that hard of a guess. We've talked about it like four times on the show. But good job, John. John, despite your discouragement, I'd love to hear about next Monday's podcast, where unlike this podcast where I get to shine, you will get to shine. Thanks, Liz.
Um, next Monday's podcast is going to be episode two in my new series, The First Short, which is like Ryan Koo's The First Feature, except it's about a short, or making a short. And, um, and it's shorter, appropriately. Yeah, so it's, I mean, I think there's only going to be three episodes, uh, so this will be the middle chunk, and it's about the uh, part of pre-production that we didn't get to in the first episode, which is crowdfunding. Um, I go pretty into detail about uh, what I did to raise the money to make the movie, Um, and I will be joined by my two producers, Justin Fisher and Casey Sinsick. And we'll get into what it was actually like to be down there uh, in Deal, Maryland, or Scotland, Maryland, and uh, shoot this thing. So, yeah, thank you for everyone who listened to the first episode and your feedback and your nice words. They're really awesome. I'm happy that it's seeming like it's helping some people. So uh, we'll get into the next part of production on Monday. Woohoo! So as always, we will link to all the opportunities we discussed on the show in this week's podcast post along with all the relevant No Film School uh, articles and interviews that we mentioned. And of course, at nofilmschool.com, you can also find brand new articles about the craft of filmmaking every single day. So we hope you'll join us there as well as subscribing to the podcast and giving us those fat, juicy stars on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. And uh, in the meantime, of course, stay in touch. I am at Liz Film on Twitter. I'm at Eric Lures. I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim, 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 John, Jim. Charles is at Charles Hain. We are all at No Film School. That was a groaner, Eric. Oh, no, I never, I forgot that his Charles Hain's at Charles Hain, and I'm at Eric Lures. It's like, we don't even try. You guys are radical. It's ridiculous. So, happy Labor Day, and we will see you next week. Bye.